0: What do you think about wearing masks? Let me just ask that question. Are you wearing a mask today? Not wearing a mask today? I've noticed that that's been in the in the debate here in our world uh, recently with COVID-19. Do you wear a mask? Do you not wear a mask? We've been going through that. I wanted to share with you how I personally how I, some of the thoughts I've had uh, along the way, because when we first started out, I would go running uh, earlier on in the, the quarantine period. I would go running in the park, as you know, and and I would not wear a mask because it's hard to breathe and run at the same time, at least when you're my age and uh, in the shape that I am. It gets a little hard to do that. So I would run without a mask because I knew transmission of the virus was pretty low outdoors versus indoors. One of the things that we've learned. And this was before masks were required or anything. And, but occasionally I'd see people wearing masks uh, out in the park. And not a lot of people, but at the beginning just a few people. And I always wondered about, you know, like, oh, well, they're really being cautious or maybe they're being overly cautious. And then Uh, Then I would also get some strange looks from people with masks on at that time, too. Like, well, why isn't he wearing... And I was always assuming some judgment from them. uh, Like, you know, why isn't he wearing a mask? Doesn't he care about people? And then I thought, well, maybe I should wear a mask. And then as time evolved, we started to get into the requirements here of wearing masks. And even before the governor required masks, I started wearing one when I I ran. Because as I came close to people, I'd pull my mask up. And then after we went away, I would pull my mask down to allow to breathe. But then I thought you know, I would come across then more people wearing masks, but then I would see still people not wearing masks, even though I was wearing a mask. So then I started to make assumptions about the people not wearing a mask. And I started to think, well, don't they care about people? And why aren't they wearing a mask? Don't they know they can catch the virus? And so this goes on. But what I'm confessing to you is this idea that If I wasn't wearing a mask, I had certain thoughts and assumptions. And when I was wearing a mask, I had certain thoughts and assumptions. And it didn't matter whether I was part of the mask crowd or non-mask crowd. I had assumptions and opinions about those who were not a part of that group, which is very human of us, right? And it's amazing that it's actually out of this that we've created this kind of power struggle about masks. And a power struggle is actually what happens when you feel powerless, When you feel powerless, that can create a power struggle. What do we feel in the face of COVID-19? We feel powerless. And so the mask becomes this symbol or this way of us asserting control or power over our world. And then we have opinions and judgments of people, whether they're wearing masks or not wearing masks, based on whether we are or not. And so we've created this power struggle over something as simple as a mask, and we've even made it political and a political statement, and all these things that are happening around just simply wearing a mask to make sure you don't get a virus. Here's the thing about COVID-19: It doesn't care about what we think. <laughs> we'll get it or not get it. A virus has no opinion about any of those things. It just will infect us. And so we have to think about that uh, from that point of view. But notice that the psychology here is that when we feel powerless. We actually want to assert control. That's part of our humanness. That's a part of the way we deal with feeling out of control or feeling powerless. In fact, why don't you chat about that right now? Maybe you, you have your own uh, story or own thought about what uh, creates uh, powerlessness or how you struggle. So what creates a power? Uh, struggle within you this morning in your life. So maybe chat about that, throw an idea out there. Maybe you've been struggling with masks or not to wear. I'm not trying to ask you to have a debate, but just say, what's causing you that power struggle this week? I came across this great quote uh, by Mar- Margaret Thatcher, former prime minister of the UK, and she said this. She says, being powerful is like being a lady. If you have to tell people you are, you aren't. And I think about that quote. She's basically saying, in a very English way, that if you have to go around telling people you're powerful, it's probably because you feel powerless. If you have to go around asserting your power and dictating your power or seizing control of situations, then that actually is a feeling of powerlessness coming out in you, and that's the psychology about that. And really, truly powerful people don't need to do that because if you really have power, if you really wield it well, you don't have to go around telling people that you're powerful. And that's an important distinction here. So we're going to look at this and I'm reason we're looking at this is because Revelation is a book not only of worship, which we're seeing in worship here in chapter 5, but it's also a book about a power struggle, a power struggle between good and evil, between Christian faith and faithful witness in the Roman Empire of the first century, but even throughout all of human history, this power struggle between good and evil. And what does it look like to wield power, and what does it look like to be a faithful witness when you're powerless, which is what the Christians were in the first century. And so really, this book is going to—the rest of Revelation from chapter six on, which we'll begin to look at next week, is really going to get into, what that power strugg- into that power struggle. But notice that chapter four and chapter five, where we're here today, that it all flows out of worship, and it flows out of the throne room of God, and where God is on the throne. And that's what's happening in the text today. So we find ourselves in chapter five, in the throne room, and out of that, there is a scroll. And that scroll is in the hand of God. Now, the scroll, typically, in the scrolls were written only on one side. So there was only writing on one side and they would send the scroll around. It could be a letter, it could be a legal document, whatever it was, and it would just be written on one side. But notice that this particular scroll has writing on both sides of it. That meant that what was in the scroll was very important and very urgent. And so if it was very important and very urgent, it would be written on both sides. The other time we see this happening is again in the prophet Ezekiel in the Hebrew Scriptures. In the Hebrew Scriptures, Ezekiel 2.10, Ezekiel is given a scroll that's written on both sides. A scroll from an angel, from God, is given to him that's written on both sides. It says, this is important, this is urgent. The other thing about the scroll is in Revelation here, it has seven seals. And these seals would have been string and a wax seal on it, and then a signet ring would be impressed upon into the seal by the witness who witnessed the recording of the scroll. So, Basically, in a legal document, six witnesses were required or six seals were required. Here in Revelation, we see this number seven again. So again, John is saying, uh, seven, using the number seven as a sign and symbol of wholeness, perfection, holiness, right? So this scroll is a holy scroll. It has seven witnesses and seven seals. And there, so the other thing about sealing the scroll was to make sure that only the intended recipient could open it. So one, the scroll, the the seals would authenticate the scroll, but it would also say no one can break the seals except for the intended recipient. Or that is what is raised here in the text, the question of who is worthy. That's the question here. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who is worthy to open this scroll? Now it's interesting because I wonder how much time passed before John began to weep. Notice that John begins crying and weeping. Why is he weeping at the sign of the scroll? Because no one is worthy to open it. What that's saying is that there is no human leader, there is no politician, there is no ruler, there is no emperor, there is no king that is worthy to open this scroll that is in the hand of God. No earthly leader or ruler could do that or is worthy to open it. It's not the intended recipient. There's only one person who's worthy And it's illustrated. And the one that is worthy is what? The lion of Judah, the root of David. These are messianic terms. For the Messiah, it's a reminder, you know, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The root of David, the root of Jesse, is talked about. The branch, right, that we learn about when we study about the birth of Christ. The Lion of Judah, again, this is a recognition that Jesus was the Messiah who came the first time, right? Came as an infant and grew up and died on a cross. And so this, this is messianic terms that are being used here to remind us of the Messiah. But the other thing about this messianic image is that what appears in the throne room, what appears in the vision, is a slain lamb. The slain lamb is the one who is worthy of worship. And then the whole chapter 5 erupts in worship. The 24 elders that are laying their crowns in chapter 4 at the throne of God are now laying them down, at the feet of the slain lamb. The, the angels, thousands upon thousands of angels, are now worshiping in addition. The four creatures that were worshiping around the throne are worshiping the slain lamb. Again, this is a book of worship. This is a chapter about worship. And the one who is worthy is the one who is worthy of our worship is not just the Messiah, but the slain lamb, the one who went to the cross for us. That's the one. Notice, though, that the lamb was slain. Here's the point. From the creation of the world. This is actually from chapter 13. I'm fast-forwarding a little bit in Revelation. But I want you to notice that the slain lamb is from the creation, the beginning, the foundations of the earth. That it wasn't just a time and event somewhere in human history, but the slain lamb, again, is the Alpha and Omega. This is inherent in the way God is working in the world and on the earth for all of time, Alpha and Omega. This is from the creation. So inherent in the creation of the world was the slain lamb. Now, how, why is that important? Well, it's important to power struggles, right? Right, Because what is, did Jesus do with the power struggle? Did he try and assert power? Did he try and take power? Did he try and control other people? Did he try and seize power? No, because he was all powerful. And when you have power, You don't need to go around asserting it and telling people you have it. It's the same with God. God is all powerful. God doesn't need to show up in our world and say, I'm powerful and you're not. Basically what Jesus is doing is actually giving up power. He is the slain lamb. And what John is communicating is that this is the way of God. That it's not about seizing power and taking power like the emperor of Rome, but it's about letting go of power. Philippians chapter 2 comes to mind. If you ever want to go read that, it talks about how Jesus stepped down. Jesus gave up power, gave up equality with God to be with us and come to be with us, right? So that's what's the, the beautiful thing from the creation of the world. It's interesting, too, that there's another image that's being used here, and that's Exodus image, imagery. Because in the Exodus story, a lamb is slain, and the blood of the lamb is put over the doorposts of the house in the Exodus story. And what is happening here, it is the sign. The blood is the sign and symbol over the house, and the plague passed over. That's why it's called a Passover lamb, or a Passover story. And it passes over those homes that have the blood of the lamb. Again, John is using this Exodus imagery In the throne room of God in Revelation, this imagery of a slain lamb, of the blood of the lamb. And it's interesting because inherent in my blood and your blood, the blood coursing through our veins, we have some cells called white blood cells. And those white blood cells go to work whenever there's an infection. Whenever there's an infection in our system, those white blood cells will go to the infection. And here's the first thing a white blood cell does. It tries to absorb the infection into itself. It's really laying down its life. It's absorbing that infection to, to give its life to protect the other healthy cells in the body. And if it can't absorb the infection The other thing it does is it throws itself at the infection to block the infection to protect the other cells around it. So all the white blood cells rush to throw themselves on the infection so that it can protect again the other healthy cells, which I think is a great image of Jesus, the slain lamb, the one who went to the cross for us. What did Jesus do when he went to the cross? He absorbed sin and he protected us from the the, the consequences of death in etern- and gave us eternal life. And so Jesus acted like this white blood cell. And I want you to notice that inherent in nature, inherent in biology, is this idea of sacrifice for others, for the love of others. That we love people enough, we love others enough to be willing to protect them and lay down our lives for them, which is the image of Jesus, the slain lamb. The one who gives up power because he wants to protect and help others, and that's so important here in this uh, imagery that John is giving us in Revelation. I love this quote from uh, from Michael Gorman. He says the Lamb imagery highlights Christ's vulnerability in faithful witness. Those liberated by the death of the faithful witness are shaped into his image as faithful witnesses as well. I love this this quote because. The thing about this quote is that it's saying to us that Jesus was vulnerable. Think about that. Jesus became a baby, the Messiah. That's the most vulnerable you can become. He went to a cross and suffered the punishment of a criminal. That's pretty vulnerable. But it was all to be a faithful witness for God. What John is saying to the first century Christians is, yeah, there's the emperor. There's the nation of Rome. They're asserting power. They're the greatest military power in the world. They're persecuting you. But you, be vulnerable, be faithful witnesses to the slain lamb. Be willing, don't go the way of the empire. Don't go the way of Rome. Don't go the way of the emperor, which is about seizing power. Give up power. Let your power go. Be vulnerable and faithful to God in the midst of the power struggle, which is really something challenging to do, isn't it? And maybe it's also challenging us for today. Is that a challenge for us today? For us to be willing to lay down, to relinquish, to give up power, rather than trying to assert power, which is the power struggle, that's what puts us into the power struggle. I think of Romans saying, don't resist an evil person. Why? Because as soon as you resist, you create the power struggle. And so part of this is, is really about how do we wield power and it's so what Jesus is saying, what John is saying to the first century Christians, and I think what it's saying to us today, is this is counterintuitive to our humanity. This is a counterintuitive because we, t- we typically want to get control. We want to seize power. We actually see this too, this power struggle happening in our world today. We see it, you know, we mentioned, I mentioned, you know, mask, whether wear a mask, not wear a mask, that's become part of the power struggle. But notice that part of the power struggle that we're seeing today is ideological. And it's interesting that that word ideological is very similar to another word called idol. And then the word logos, Greek word logos, is where we get the "ology" from. So I would say that our ideology, it's possible that our ideology can become an idolology or take the place of God in our hearts and in our lives. So what do I mean by that? Let me give you some examples of some idolologies that are happening in our world today. So we've got some of these competing idolologies. We see nationalism we see social activism, and we see science. These are all ideologies or things that become idols for us that we can put in the place of God or put alongside God's throne in our own hearts, in our own minds. What do I mean by that? Well, notice some things about nationalism. If you don't agree with nationalism, if you don't agree with the nationalist agenda, if you don't agree with those things, notice how quickly people are to say that you're being blasphemous, you know. Uh, Colin Kaepernick is an example that he's, he is a person who's been persecuted or ostracized because of his not being a nationalist, not going along with nationalism. And, and think about this, too. There's an agenda out there around social activism and social justice. And here's the other thing about social justice. You and I can practice social justice, and it can be devoid of God altogether. In fact, our social activism and our passion uh, around those things can actually become an idol in and of themselves. Notice too that if you don't agree with the social activist agenda that's going on in our day, you're considered a heretic. Or worse, you get labeled something else. And these ideologies, if you don't agree with them, the people who are all about those ideologies will label you as a heretic, as a, as a, as a blasphemous person or whatever. And so these things are going. We see this power struggle happening. We've even taken that power struggle into wearing masks. And then along comes science as well. Science comes along as a part of that power struggle and a part of that ideology that says, hey, you follow the science, and if you're not following the science, you must be ignorant. Or if you're a person of faith or a vulnerable witness for Jesus, then you must not have, you must, something must be wrong with you, right? And so you, you begin to feel that persecution as well based on whether or not you, are a person of science or intelligent enough. And so these things come out in these ideologies, but notice something that all of them, in all these ideologies, that the sacred, the secular has become sacred. It used to be that this happened, this blasphemy, this heresy, these agendas were happening in the religious community. But notice, as I read one author this week, that that sacred has moved over into the secular. And what used to be sacred in the religious world has now moved into the secular world. And now what's, what's sacred is politics. What's sacred is ideologies. And then we use shame to shame each other around those ideologies, right? And we're shaming each other and we're not coming together. And we're, it's just revealing our power struggle and our brokenness as humanity, as humans. And then what do you do when that ideology or ideology doesn't Take you all the way there. Let me use an example from science because someone asked me uh, some science questions at the beginning of this series. But stay with me on this one. Hubble, who we got the Hubble name, the Hubble telescope is named after Hubble. He was an astronomer in the early part of the 20th century, and he was studying the stars. And one of the things he noticed about the stars was that they were moving apart. They were moving away from each other and expanding. The universe was expanding. And so he believed that the universe was static and should not be expanding. So he had no explanation for this. He also did not believe in God. So the possibility that God could have created the universe was not within his framework of thinking. So he came up with all these other possible ideas about what was going on. And all those ideas were wrong. He, as a scientist, was wrong about a lot of things even though he discovered something, he made an observation a discovery that was very important to what we now know as the Big Bang Theory. So he discovered something about the universe, but all his conclusions and his science about it were wrong. And so that's the problem with science. Science is always changing. Science is always evolving. It's never a certain, there's no such thing in the way of an exact science uh, because it's always changing and evolving. And at some point we're going to reach a gap. Science will only take us so far. Nationalism will only take us so far. Social activism will only take us so far. There's always going to leave us with a gap. What are you filling that gap with? What are you filling that ambiguity, that uncertainty with? What goes there? Hubble, he couldn't put God there, but I put God there. And notice that in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God spoke. That In the beginning was the word, and the God spoke and bang, it happened, so to speak, right? Let there be light. So the Big Bang happened as a quantum fluctuation, scientists say. Or, I say, God. (laughs) God spoke, and that quantum fluctuation happened. Now, here's the question that people posed earlier in this series. They said, well, what about the multiverse? Because we were talking about God being the ruler of the universe. Well, what about other universes? Well, the multiverse theory idea, it's really just an idea, or really there's no evidence for it whatsoever, is what science is trying to do is explain where the quantum fluctuation came from. Whereas I would say it came from the creator, the ruler of the universe. Science is saying, well, we don't have room for God in our viewpoint, so we've got to come up with another explanation. So the other explanation that the science has come up with, some scientists have come up with, is the multiverse theory. That another universe out there Created our universe, or that quantum fluctuation came from another universe and created this universe. And so, uh, whether true or not, it doesn't matter because the question of God just gets punted down the street. Because then you still have to ask the question well, who created that universe that created our universe? We're just punting, we're just moving uh, down the, the God question down the block, so to speak. But anyway, notice that if you don't buy into that, right? If you don't do that, if you don't, what do you do? when you don't buy into that, right, you're considered ignorant. You're considered like you're, you must be an ignorant person. Again, we're being shamed because we're not adhering to an ideology. I want us to, to think about this as well. Here's the thing for us as Christians, and if we take what's happening in John's letter, Revelation, what did John write? What it was written to the seven churches. Church of Ephesus was said, said to the church of Ephesus, you've lost your first Love. What that meant was their passion for God had waned, right? And I wonder if there were some other passions that were taking over their lives. Maybe there was another passion or another ideology at that time. You know, it's mentioned uh, some other ideologies that were happening in the churches, that the churches were gravitating or giving into these other ideologies and that that was taking away from their passion for God in the first century? Could it be that these ideologies or ideologies today are taking away our passion for God as well? That's doing it. Like the church in Ephesus, we may have lost our first love because we've replaced it with nationalism or social activism or some other passion like science, or maybe another passion altogether that you or I have in our lives. Or take the church of Laodicea, for example. Church of Laodicea became lukewarm. They actually had a spring there that was lukewarm, water that was lukewarm because it was mixed. Hot water and cold water were mixed together. That's what created a lukewarm environment. It's possible that you and I can take our passion for God and our passion for some other ideology and mix them together and we become lukewarm Christians because our passion for God is not our priority. We start to sync it up or mix it with other passions and other ideologies that take us away from God. And so what are you, where are these ideologies in the throne room of your heart? Are they, is God on the throne of your heart? Or are these other ideologies, are you putting your hope and your faith in salvation in these other ideologies? Or is your salvation and your hope and your faith in God who is on the throne and in the, the ruler of the universe and in control of everything in human history and ultimately knows the ending to the power struggle between good and evil in the world? That's what Revelations is telling us, that, the, that somebody wins, but it's none of those ideologies. The person who wins is the slain lamb. Notice that. The slain lamb. The one who wins is the one who gives up power. Is that radical or what? Is that a radical thought for you? That it's really not about engaging the power struggle or seizing power as much as it is as giving up power for the love of others? Of letting go of power to love and protect others? That's what the slain lamb, slain lamb does. For us in our own salvation. Notice that even when Jesus was on the planet, that when he was engaging the Roman government, the nation of Rome in Pilate, the governor of Pilate, he remained silent. He did not answer to that authority because he answered to God's authority in his life. He did not see Rome as a legitimate power over his life. There was also other people, disciples, that wanted him to protest and seize control of Jerusalem and take the kingship and wanted him to take power. But notice that he also did not do that. He did not seize power. He did not take control, even though he could have. He gave up his life. He went to a cross. He was the slain lamb. Notice that the way God works is different than the way you and I work. You know, it brings new meaning to that verse, the meek shall inherit the earth. Jesus said that. Jesus said that this is the way of God. This is the way that God calls us. And why is God, what's going on here? What what is the hope of this? What is the reason for this? Well, Jesus actually tells us that. In fact, chapter 5 tells us that. And all the book of Revelation keeps repeating this theme. This is the theme. In fact, it says here in chapter 5, it's a new song that the people of worshiping God in heaven will be singing this new song. Here's the new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. (laughs) And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. You see that? No one nation, no one ideology, no one language, no one tribe, everybody coming together because of someone who was willing to give up power, the slain lamb. I love Eric's video that we saw earlier because it shows us that we're bigger than just one church. We're bigger than just one group of people. God wants to bring every nation, every tribe, every language together in heaven in worship and in unison and in unity. And the only way that happens is if we're all willing to relinquish power and give up power, right? And think about others and love others, right? Love God, love others. It's sometimes that simple, right? That's the image of heaven. That's the vision of God. That's what God is working for. That's what the slain lamb has laid down his life for, is that. And that phrase of every tribe, nation, tongue, language is repeated over again in Revelation. This is the future. This is our future as Christians. So we'll need to be willing to lay down our ideologies, our idolologies, to follow the slain lamb. In fact, Jesus actually asked us to do that. So he said in Luke chapter nine, he says, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily like the slain lamb and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very soul. How are you wielding power today? Are you used to trying to seize it and seize control? Or are you willing to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow the slain lamb? Let's pray together.